Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Well, this is the book of Revelation, session 41. Session 41 is entitled, The Prominence of the Priesthood. Now, what we're doing in this series is we're looking at themes in the book of Revelation. So, yeah, there's a priesthood in the Bible, but tonight we're going to look at the prominence of the way that the priesthood keeps showing up again and again in the book of Revelation. Now, to do that well, we are going to need to do a little non-Revelation, you know, laying some foundation from Hebrews and a a couple other places. But then we're going to look at the book of Revelation and see all the places that talk about the activity of the priesthood in the book of Revelation. And this is going to be valuable because this may not be something that you naturally think of when you think of the book of Revelation. And we want to start to see things uh, uh, with the prayer movement kind of lens as we read the book of Revelation. And so last week, we talked specifically about the prayer movement. And tonight we're going to talk about the priesthood, which it's really the same thing, but I I want us to see the priestly operation in the book of Revelation because as we near the time of the end, the role of the priesthood in the church is going to become more and more significant. The revelation of the priesthood, doing the priesthood, talking about the priesthood is going to become more part of what Christianity is all about as we move closer to the second coming. So uh, number one here, if you're in the notes, the orchestration of an earthly priesthood. I want to start with this. This is bizarre to me. I mean, it's not bizarre uh, that it happened. It's bizarre that it's such a big deal and that it's uh, so not on our radar. Here's what I mean. God started the nation of Israel. And we know, you know, kind of the the storyline but ultimately, you're not a nation until you've got your, your own people leading you. You're able to identify in a certain way and do things on your own. And so really, in all intended purposes, while Abraham was the father of Israel, Israel wasn't really a nation that was able to operate like a nation until Israel left Egypt. That was when the nation of Israel started in its official sense, okay? Up until that point, they were a bunch of slaves under the leadership of Egypt, So the first thing that God does, this is one of those important moments. Whenever you see God making a giant transition in history, a giant transition in the people of God, what does he do first is kind of a a tip-off to what's important, to what things are supposed to look like. You know the first thing that God did when he pulled the nation of Israel out of Egypt? He said this to them, Exodus 19.5. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you're to speak to the Israelites. Now this is God setting the pace, the tone for what Israel's supposed to be all about and really what the people of God forever are supposed to be all about. God says, hey, I took you out of slavery. Now you're mine. What's the assignment? I need you guys to be a bunch of cartwheelers. Need everybody to learn how to do cartwheels? No. I need you guys to be really good at cooking burgers. No. What did he say? You're a priesthood to me. I pulled you out of Israel. You're mine. 
Now you're a priesthood. Now he's going to then spend the next chapters, Moses says he's writing it down, going to spend the next bunches of chapters, even bunches of books of the Old Testament, describing what that priesthood is and how it operates and what's supposed to happen. But the first thing that he did is he said, now that you're mine, let me tell you who you are. You're a priesthood. Okay? Then he built the entire nation around the priesthood. This is so crazy. Just think about what would happen if any politician in, in life was given a giant island and said, start your own nation and build it however you want. Okay? That's more or less what was happening here. God was starting a new nation and he's going to give national orchestration, national government, policies, issues. He's going to lay it out and he's going to call the nation of Israel to a specific way of life. Do you know what he did? He built the entire national structure, infrastructure, reporting, tax system. He built it all around the priesthood. He established a priesthood within this nation. He said, the whole nation, you're a kingdom of priests to me. Then he said, I'm going to raise up a tribe from within you. The descendants of Aaron are going to be a priesthood within the priesthood, but I'm going to have the entire nation function, flow, and be responsible to a priesthood, a priestly order within the nation. No one would do that. That's not how you would set up a nation. You would set up a nation with a completely different governance and a, a completely different central point. God established his people around a priesthood. That's what it was all about. Now, this is kind of important because God didn't do this accidentally, look back and go, ah, oh, dang it, I gave him the wrong DNA. I started this whole, you know, nation of Israel, the nation of God thing, and I did it wrong. He had specific purposes in mind. He was trying to define what it means to be a follower of God. He was trying to lay the genetics real clear. So I gave you some verses there. Well, this concept of a priesthood didn't start with Israel. It started in heaven long before Israel was a nation. So actually what God was doing with his nation of Israel, his people, the apple of his eye, what he was actually doing was he was saying, hey, I actually just want you to operate in a shadow, the shadow of heaven. I want you to do on earth as they are already doing in heaven. I want you to operate as a priesthood because that's actually how we do it up here. In heaven, that's how we roll. We operate as a priesthood, so I just want you to model what it is that we're doing because I promise you, as a priesthood upstairs in heaven, things are working really, really well. If you'll operate like a priesthood down there, things will operate very well for you as well. So this was the pattern. This was how God set up the nation of Israel. I mean, that's, that's a pretty profound deal. One more point. Jesus is our high priest. Now, heard that term, no doubt. Some of you, depending on your background, you may have studied that a little, may have looked into that a little. I think it's something that we've heard, but it's not something that we've really come to understand, many. I think that this idea that Jesus is the high priest, I think here's what we've done. We have made savior and high priest synonymous. He's the savior, you know, the high priest. Those two are completely different titles. Completely different job descriptions, completely different purpose, function, role, position, jobs, tasks, duties. He is our Savior. 
And we understand that one to a degree. But he is our high priest, and I challenge we don't know what that means at all. Well, let's read a little bit here in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.14, top of page 2. This is a significant part of the faith that we hold to. We hold to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We hold to the ascension of Jesus. We even hold to the second coming of Jesus. Do you know what Jesus is doing in heaven right now? He's high priesting. Jesus graduated off of planet earth, was ascended to the right end of the Father, and serves in heaven right now. He's not actually serving in heaven as, as Savior. He is Savior, but he's not walking around doing Savior stuff. Right now in heaven, he's operating as a high priest. That's what he's doing in heaven right now. The faith that we hold to, therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Did you catch this? The faith we profess is connected to Jesus being a high priest. The faith we connect, that we profess, since Jesus ascended to heaven, and he's a high priest in heaven, now that empowers us to hold strong to the faith that we believe in. It's actually connected to the fact that right now he's upstairs being a great high priest. Our forerunner, Hebrews 6.20. Our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever. Oh, okay, wait a minute. This idea of forerunner, that means go on ahead. Jesus is our forerunner as a high priest because we are all going to be priests. Jesus is calling us into the ministry of the priesthood. He is a forerunner, not just in his being in heaven, not just in his resurrected body. He's a forerunner in both of those things too. He's a forerunner priest in heaven. And the reason he's called a forerunner priest is because you and I are going to operate in that role in heaven. And we're supposed to be trying to figure out what that's all about in this life now. It's not supposed to be brand new. We show up in heaven and go, oh my God, did you know we were priests? I had no idea. We're supposed to be practicing now. So we show up there not totally illiterate. Jesus is a forerunner priest. Ever thought of that before? He's a forerunner priest. That's what it says, Hebrews 6. Hebrews 3, 1. He's inviting us to share in the heavenly calling. The heavenly calling. Heavenly calling doesn't mean go to heaven. Heavenly calling means the activity of those that are in heaven. What are they doing in heaven? What is their calling? They're serving before God as priests, like the forerunner priest. Look, let's read it. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. We acknowledge Jesus as our high priest. He is in heaven. Part of our heavenly calling is not just that we're going to heaven. Going to heaven isn't really the point. That's the entry for the point. You get to heaven so that you can then start doing the point. Well, Jesus is our forerunner priest. He got there before us. He got started on the heavenly call before we got there. But we get to share in the heavenly call. What's the heavenly call? It's, a, it's an elaborate answer to that question. But absolutely part of it is 
the call to be priests before God in heaven, like our forerunner priest. Just as kind of a duh statement, priests serve in sanctuaries. Let's read it. Hebrews 8, 1 through 2. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So this is a, check that out. A high priest who sat down in front of God in heaven. That's what that says. We have a high priest who sat down in front of God in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary. The true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. There's the true tabernacle. Jesus, as a high priest, is serving in a sanctuary. He's serving before the altar of the Lord. He's serving there in the presence of God as a high priest. And we're in the same heavenly calling, and we get to serve in sanctuaries here on earth, if we want to. We get to serve in sanctuaries here on earth that are, again, a shadow priesthood. It's not the priesthood upstairs, but it's doing our best with our limitations, with our limited time, money, resources, and number of years we get to live. We serve as best as we can, at least this is the call, in sanctuaries on the earth that are dedicated to the priesthood, just like our high priest is in heaven serving in a sanctuary before the Lord as high priest. I'm not making this up. It's right there. He's serving in a sanctuary because that's what priests do. They serve in sanctuaries. Now, here's where I think this just gets awesome, okay? We often think about Jesus as the king who's coming. And he is. He is king and he is coming. We look into the book of Revelation and we see the judge. And we think about he's coming and there's a lot of judgments that are coming when the judge comes. When the king comes, he brings the kingdom. When the judge comes, he brings judgment. When the bridegroom comes, he brings a wedding. You got me? What happens when the high priest comes? He brings a priesthood. The high priest is coming. And he's going to establish in real time an everlasting priesthood. The high priest is coming. He's not just bridegroom, king, and judge. He's all those and more. He's also the high priest. We're real clear on the high priest part, right? We read enough Bible verses. Jesus is the high priest. What happens when the high priest comes to town? He does high priest stuff. He's going to establish the priesthood forever. I just gave you a bunch of verses here that say he's coming. It's a major theme of Revelation. I gave you Revelation 1-7, he's coming. 3-11, he's coming. 22-7, he's coming. 22-12, he's coming. And 22-12 again, a little bit later in the verse, he's coming. He's coming is a major point, but who's coming? Jesus, the lamb that was slain? Yes, also, Jesus, the high priest, he's coming. And just like we want to know Jesus, the lamb, we want to know what he's about. What does it mean that he's a lamb? What does that sacrifice look like? What does it mean to be meek and lowly? We also want to know him as Jesus, the high priest. It's one of his titles. It's not just a name badge. It's part of his identity. It's who he is. We got saved into that man. And we got saved into the call to meekness like the lamb. We got saved into that man who is the king. We got saved into that kingdom and the kingdom objectives. 
We got saved into that man. That man is a high priest. We got saved into a priesthood. This is how it goes. Well, now let's look at the priesthood in the book of Revelation. Now that we kind of got it established here, let's look at what this says. This is Revelation 4, 8 through 11. The priesthood of heaven. This is the opening scene after the introduction. So the book of Revelation gives us three chapters of introduction in some various ways. I won't go into. It's previous sessions that we covered. But the first time that we actually get to see into heaven and the first time that the storyline begins to open up is Revelation chapter 4. And the first thing that we see is a priesthood in operation around the throne of which Jesus is the high priest. That's the picture that we see. So when you see Revelation 4 and 5, start seeing what's happening there. Jesus the high priest operating a priesthood. The four living creatures and had six wings and they were covered with eyes all around and under their wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They give him glory. They worship him. This is the activity of priestly ministry. They are giving praise and adoration to God the Father and to Jesus the Son. They're giving adoration. Do you know, just as a little side point, the book of Psalms were mostly written by those that were doing the priestly ministry in the tabernacle of David. They were mostly written by priests. Now again, whether they were priests of a priestly line or they were dudes who were operating of those at a priestly responsibility, they were priests operating, writing those songs, and their primary expression of the priesthood for David and his crew was to sing worship songs to God, declaring who he is in a dark world. That's priestly responsibility, priestly roles. And here they are, the book of Revelation. These four living creatures right there. But look at this. Not just the opening scene, not just the priesthood in heaven upstairs. Let's look now at what Revelation says about the identity of believers. Look at this. We were made to be priests. You know, knit me together in my mother's womb kind of thing. Gave me life, new creation in Christ. You were made to be priests. Revelation says so. Revelation 1, 5. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. That's good. We know that story. Salvation. And has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God. Made you to be priests. Now, this is kind of important. If you find out you were made for something, and then you find out you're not doing anything related to what you were made for, you're operating out of wrong purposes. Like, you're actually like not fulfilling the fullness of your purposes because the book of Revelation says you were made not just to be part of the kingdom, we're getting that revelation. That's a growing clarity point in the body of Christ that we're part of the kingdom. You were made to be priests. That's what Revelation says. Says it again a few chapters later, Revelation 5.10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. There it is again, made to be priests. The book of Revelation declaring our identity, establishing a priesthood. The book of Revelation is telling us the destiny of the church is to be a priesthood before God. But that makes sense since Jesus is a high priest. 
Does that make sense now? Now when we think high priest, we're not thinking synonymous with Savior, synonymous with King. No, he's a high priest. You know, some dude who who has no rapport at all could wind up being a Savior, you know, in the physical sense. Comes in with a big sword, gets all the bad guys, and everybody goes, well, you're our hero, you're our Savior, you saved us, that's great, thank you. Then you could also be a king, and a king may or may not be a savior. And then you might also have a judge, and a judge may or may not be any of those other things. This guy is also the high priest, and it has nothing to do with him being savior, or him being king, or him being judge, or him being whatever. It's a unique part of who he is and what he's about. And we're told you were made to be priests unto the priesthood of the high priest, Jesus. I love this in the book of Revelation. It talks about the priesthood as one of the primary eternal rewards. The priesthood. The fact that when you die, or if he comes while you're still alive and you get caught up, either way, you wind up in the priesthood forever. But do you know in every order, in every government, in every organization, there's a hierarchy? Everywhere. Management at a restaurant. You know, you're part of a, of a group. You're part of a, a school. You're part of a this event. There's a hierarchy. You got the principal. Then you got the vice principal. Then you got, you know, whatever the management of the staff that's running the offices. And you got the teachers. You got Every organization everywhere has a hierarchy. We're told that there are certain eternal rewards tied to promotions in the priesthood in the age to come. Promotions. One of the primary rewards for every believer is you're part of the priesthood. But what part? Where where do you fit in the priesthood in the age to come? Because it's not Jesus high priest and everybody else all doing the exact same thing. There's an organization. Just like there was great order and organization in the priesthood that God established in Exodus. There was great order and leadership roles and responsibilities. And There's actually eternal rewards tied to your eternity uh, as, as a priest. It just so happens both of the ones that are listed have to do with significant persecution. I gave you these verses here. Top of page uh, four. The one who's victorious... I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. This is actually a priestly role. It's a a priestly function, a priestly proximity. It's not just that he's made a pillar in heaven somewhere. It's a pillar in the temple of God where the priesthood operates. This is an eternal reward promise that actually, if you go back and you look at the context of Revelation chapter 3, it's enduring significant persecution. That's what it's uh, related to. But look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, right underneath it. Blessed are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This one's actually tied to martyrdom in the last days. So there's going to be varying uh, roles and interaction in that priesthood, just like there's varying roles and responsibilities in everything in the kingdom of God, both in this age and the next. So it's one of the, the rewards, one of the carrots that's dangled before us in this age. What role do you want to have in the priesthood in the age to come? What level of, of proximity and nearness in the priesthood do you want to have? 
I just find that to be so fascinating in the book of Revelation. How about this one? Did you know that the great tribulation produces a priesthood? The great tribulation produces a priesthood. Let's read it. Revelation 7, 9 through 15. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe, nation, people, language. And they were standing before the, th- the throne and before the Lamb. That's, that's where the priesthood takes place, before the throne and before the Lamb. Who are these? These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. That's the priestly ministry. You've got a great multitude that is going to serve God in the age to come. But who is this great multitude? Is it just everybody who's ever lived? No, it's specifically those who have come out of the great tribulation. The great tribulation will produce the greatest priesthood in the history of the world. The great tribulation. What? The great tribulation is partially about producing a priesthood. The great tribulation, because of the pressures of it. Because if you make it through the great tribulation, one of two things happened. You died as a martyr, or you stayed true to Jesus during the most difficult time in human history. Either way, priesthood. (laughs) Either way, that is a high caliber group of people to reboot the priesthood in the age to come. This is what happens to them. Now they are positioned before the throne of God. And what will they do there? They will serve him day and night in his temple. They'll operate as priests because that's who we are. The, The great tribulation will produce a priesthood. Revelation 22, just as we're wrapping up the book of Revelation, kind of getting to the end of it, it's thrown in there one more time. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. So the city of heaven. But the throne of God and of the Lamb, it'll be there, and His servants will serve Him. It's not like they're bringing Him fruit. You know, they like big palm branches and they're fanning God. No. The context of serving God every time, is the priestly role of worship and intercession, of serving God as priests. But that shouldn't be a surprise because we were already told two, three times we were made to be priests to serve God. Made to be priests to serve God as priests. So that's what's happening here. We're wrapping up the book of Revelation, chapter 22 there, and once again we see this role of the priesthood brought to front and center the responsibility, the role, the privilege, the honor, the destiny, the identity of the bride of Christ to serve God as priests in his temple. The priestly role of singing in the book of Revelation. Now, when we sing, and let's, let's just go back because sometimes we have a hard time picturing ourselves in the story. We'll get there as a second step. Let's go back to those priests in David's tabernacle or back in the temple and they're singing God the Psalms. I mean, straight up singing him the Psalms. Like you and I would sing the Psalms, only they would sing it really good because they wrote them, okay? They're singing God the Psalms. They're not imagining that they're doing it and that there's no impact. We're singing these songs and it's just kind of cool to do that. It's good. They're believing that when they sing those songs and they're ascribing glory to God, they're chasing off darkness, And they're right, because they are. 
The Lord is inhabiting the prayers and the intercession and the worship of his people. He's actually in the midst of the assembly. And as they sing those songs, they are bringing about decrees in the nation. They're shifting the spiritual atmosphere. They're operating in the priestly role. That's what's happening. Now, if that's happening on planet Earth in a temple built of wood and gold, how much more is that happening in heaven before the throne in what in what uh, the author described as the true tabernacle, the true sanctuary, the real one, not the shadows that we build down here. And God is really into those shadows. He's the one that invented the concept, build a shadow priesthood, build a shadow tabernacle, build, build a, it's, it's a, it's a window. It's a, it's a glimpse. It's, it's a dim reflection, but it's a reflection. And it's super valuable because it's the best we can do. We know in part, we prophesy in part. Only then will we be known and, and know fully. But right now, we operate in these shadows, in these veiled moments. How much more real is it before the throne in heaven? The 24 elders before the throne, they're called elders. But as we read about them, we don't see them elding. We see them singing. You know, like you think elders in, in a church body or whatever around here, the last thing that you would imagine is when they get together, they sing. You know, all the elders are together. What are they doing in there? Singing. Well, when are they going to get to Eldon and like, you know, lead stuff? Do you know how these elders lead? They're priests before the throne of God. And they sing and they declare and they bow down and they worship. They're operating in the priesthood before the throne. It's actually the primary priesthood in the universe is happening before the throne of God, and it's done with these elders. What else? The 144,000? I love this. Did you know the 144,000 in the book of Revelation? It's 12 nations times 12, or 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. 12 tribes from the nation of Israel, and each tribe gets 12,000 people saved out of each tribe. You add 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12 it equals 144,000. It's 144,000 freshly saved Jews. That's who the 144,000 is. It's 100, and it, I mean, it's really clear. It says it exactly. It tells you how many people from each tribe. There's no mystery to this. It's 144,000 freshly saved Jews. Do you know what, the, what assignment they're given? Sing and bring about the fullness of the victory of Jesus' purposes at the second coming and right after. That's what they're told to do. Look at this, Revelation 14, 3, talking about this. Uh, uh, and we're going to spend a whole session on 144,000, so we'll get there. They sang a new song, where? Before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. I'll just give you a little snapshot. This 144,000, for them to show up before the throne at this point in the book of Revelation means they were martyred, okay? 144,000, but check this out. God says, oh, it's cool. I'm so glad you're here. You 144,000, I got a special song for you. I wrote it one billion years ago, okay? I've been waiting for you. No one's ever sung it before and no one else can learn it. No one else can learn this song or sing this song. It's never been sung before. Sing it. And when they sing it, 
it begins to release the kingdom of God in the most powerful way on the earth. It's actually part of what's happening at the second coming. It's part of what's ushering in the return. It's part of the activity of the Lord that's establishing his government on the earth. They are singing this song as priests, and it's powerful. They're lifting up a song, a sacrifice of praise, and it's a very specific, powerful song, and they're operating as a priesthood, and it's releasing the kingdom of God on earth. This, then, is how you should pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. They're doing it, but they're doing it before the throne. Notice it says, before the throne, before the elders, before the living creatures. You just imagine this 144,000 walking up and going, hey, living creatures, take a break. We got it for a minute. 24 elders, you good, you good. We got this one, this is our leg. And the 144,000 then begin to sing. I just, what would it be like to be standing right there? Woo, it's an anticipated moment from all of human history. It's a song that's never been sung before. No one else can learn it except these 144,000 people. Oh, it's so crazy. And they release it and boom, the kingdom breaks forth. It's, that is powerful. How about the great multitude at the end of the age? The great multitude at the end of the age. Look at this. They operate as a priesthood. Chapter 15. It's not only the 144,000 that get to have a significant, significant role in the end time events as priests. It's also everybody else. I love the way that God so frequently in the word makes it clear. I got a plan for Israel. It's special. I got a plan for everybody else. It's special. Both of these roles are special, unique, and can't be replaced. And actually, things don't get done unless both are doing their thing. I got a plan for Israel. It's special. They got a special song. You can't sing that special song if you ain't Jewish. You can't sing that special song if you're Jewish and not one of the 144,000. This is special, special, special. But I got a special plan for the rest of y'all. The every tribe, language, nation, all that, the great multitude at the end of the age, look what it says. Revelation 15, 2. I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside this sea. You know how big a sea is? It's big. Standing beside it. So on the shoreline of this sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and the number of its name, what is their reward? This is the great multitude that's come through the great tribulation. This is the great multitude. It's every tribe language. Who is this? What do they do? They held harps given them by God and they sang the song of God's servant, Moses, and of the Lamb. They sing the song of the Lamb. You know what next happens in the sequential order of things? The very next thing that happens is the bowls of wrath are poured out in response to this song. This is the great multitude going, God, you are good, you are just, and then they begin to sing the song of the Lamb. And, they, and I, we don't get into that right now, but it's a good one. They're singing the song of the Lamb, and it releases the final judgments of the bowls of wrath. That's really intense. The end-time bride will flow like a priesthood. She'll know the plan. I just I want to read this to you, and then we'll, we'll uh, break up into groups. I'm going to read uh, part B, praying in agreement with his plan, bottom of page 5. It's essential that we become intimately acquainted with the content of the book of Revelation so that we can partner effectively with Jesus in the place of prayer when that time comes. Partner effectively. He told us the plan already. The book of Revelation has profound insights about the future. 
profound clarity about what God thinks about, cares about, what he wants, what he once prayed, what he once sung. It would be irresponsible for us to do nothing with the book of Revelation because he actually wants us to be partnering with him. As we sing these songs and pray these prayers, we come into agreement with God about who he is and what he's going to do. And it's the power of that agreement that is going to dislodge demonic strongholds and is going to release God's judgment against his enemies and is going to actually usher in the second coming, is actually going to usher in the kingdom age. Lord, let your kingdom come on the planet like you've already been doing it up there. Do it here now for real, full force, 100%. We're going to be praying the book of Revelation to see that happen. And I gave you there a list of things uh, that we're going to be praying. Hey, so we're going to go ahead and transition now into our time of Q&A. And I'm going to do my best to repeat the questions for those that are watching online or that will uh, listen or watch this later. Uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll start back there with Andy. What's a qu group question for you guys? So I think the question is, what are some of the distinctions between the operation of the Old Testament priesthood and the New Testament priesthood? Or the millennial priesthood? Okay. Um, so... Uh, this is actually a really big subject, and I would encourage you guys to go familiarize yourself. If, this is, if, if you're hearing this and you hear my answer and you're interested, go spend some time looking at Ezekiel chapter 40 through 44 because it describes the millennial temple which Jesus will build on the planet. I mean, that's the most crazy idea. <laughs> Jesus being the key architect on a giant temple on the planet. And the details are given in great detail about this temple in uh, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 44. 44 through 48? 44 through 48. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the correction. Um, so what's it going to look like? Well, there's some things that we know, and then in my opinion, there's a lot of things that we don't know. One thing that we do know God is into upgrading the, the priesthood. He's done it many times. Give you a couple for instances. So we start off, and the priesthood originally was operating with Moses in a tent by himself, and Joshua was allowed to come be a part of it uh, in his tent. But then the upgrade happened after that, that then a corporate tent was built, and now everybody could come. But then with that was an organized system of sacrificial worship. And that that was an upgrade. But then King David came in and King David changed the rules. And King David said, what if instead of offering animals, we offered songs? And David set up this, temp, uh, this, uh, this priesthood and the sacrifices that David was, uh, was lifting up was never kill an animal ever. That never happened. David's uh, priestly order was all about singing songs of worship and warfare. And so once again, we see this priesthood being upgraded. But then we're told in the New Testament that now it's a New Testament priesthood. And that specifically, we do not offer the sacrifices of the Old Testament sacrificial system. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. So now there's this New Testament priesthood. So then you've got the millennial priesthood. Then you've got the priesthood in heaven right now. There's kind of this, this constant upgrading. And honestly, in order for God to be God, he needs to continually shock us for billions times trillions of years. So whatever happens, it's going to get bigger and better 
and more Jesus-y. And it's going to upgrade again, and it's going to be cooler. And, and then we're going to go, oh my gosh, I can't believe the last billion years we thought it was this. And then he blows our mind again. So whatever it is, it's going to continue to evolve. Now, we know a couple of things about the millennial uh, priesthood. We know that if all the nations don't participate in the priesthood, if all the nations don't come to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices, they won't get rain, and they'll get a wild death plague released on them in the millennium. It says that in Zechariah chapter 12, 14. Thank you. Chapter 14, it describes the release of a death plague on all the nations that won't come and worship Jesus in Jerusalem during the millennial age. And also that they're, uh, they, they won't get rain, that their nations won't get rain. Now, one thing that's interesting that I'll just be honest, I don't have all the ins and outs on, but I've got one thing I'm sure about. There are too many verses that describe a portion, a portion of the priesthood, not the entirety of the priesthood. I don't believe in any way the majority of the priesthood, but there is a portion of the priesthood, there's too many verses on it, that actually are going to have the sacrificial system in place through Jews in the millennium. There's too many verses on it that I just can't shake it. Now, again, I don't think that's the primary in any way because all these other components of the priesthood are in operation. But the, the way that we celebrate Jesus and the priesthood that it's operation now, I think if we're going to take the verses on earth as it is in heaven, how is it in heaven? Well, there's not the sacrificial system. How is it in heaven? There is worship. There is agreement. There is... Angels, there's billions and billions of uh, all in assembly that are singing songs together. It's not just fun to sing songs together. It's powerful. It releases aspects of the kingdom. I think there's going to be a significant aspect of the way that Jesus runs his government in the next age that requires certain people at certain times to sing certain songs in order to be able to release purposes of the kingdom in the kingdom age. So uh, again, there's a lot of mystery, uh, but there's, there are some things that we can know. So, yep, thank you. 40 to 46, okay, 40 to 46 is the temple, and then after that it gives a little bit more detail that's kind of related to the outskirts of the temple. So you could really call it 40 through 48 if you wanted to. Okay, good, thank you. So that's Ezekiel, uh, by the way. Um, okay, John, uh, group question for you guys. 22 verse 3, yeah, okay. So servants will serve him. So uh, one of the things that we've, we've got to look at is that... Um, the, the proximity here, this isn't describing service in the general sense of I follow God and I do whatever he wants. We're always going to do that. I mean, a billion years from now, people that love Jesus are going to do whatever Jesus wants. A billion years from now, Jesus is going to have assignments and things that he wants done. But this is more specific than that. This is getting down into this, the priestly responsibility. This is talking about, and again, not just that verse, but the other six verses in Revelation that say the exact same thing. It's talking about the priestly responsibilities. And so I think, honestly, what it's describing has a lot to do with what we see with those 24 elders before the throne now in heaven. And what they're doing, what their role is, their priestly role, it's the, the primary thing that we can give God in service is the thing that he can't give himself, worship. You know what I mean? I mean, in the, within the Trinity, he can give himself worship. Father worships son, son worships... But the, the primary responsibility and call from humanity is to give him something that he doesn't give himself. Something that he is, if you would, in the limited term, lacking in. And that is worship. There's never enough of it. So I think that the primary responsibility of the priests in the age to come is worship. Now, I'll say this. I think we have yet to scratch the surface 
of what worship looks like. I think we have very limited understanding and we've come a long way even in the last 20 years since I've been in the kingdom. Worship has come a long way in 20 years. I think we have yet to scratch the surface of what worship looks like and what's going on up there. We've got a few tricks to learn from the angels and living creatures and we're going to take some cues from those elders. And so I, I think that there's a significant worship ministry that we have never even begun to, no eye has seen, no mind has perceived uh, what worship's going to look like related to the priesthood and serving Jesus before his throne. Caitlin, your group question? Great. Luke Cooper? So Jesus is high priest forever, but he's also God. <laughs> he's our Savior. So is, is as a high priest, is he doing work? Like, is he doing priest stuff? Yes. Is he being worshipped? Yes. Is he judging? Yes. Is he king of all kings? Yes. Is he, I mean, there's no end to his, his, what he does. You know, a lot of times we think about Jesus in the age to come and we've limited him to sitting on a big golden chair in heaven and never moving and just kind of having like a big halo over his head with a smile on his face as he constantly receives worship. That's part of what he'll do. He's also the king of kings. It's not just a nifty title. It means... He has to be a king. Kings have business meetings. And furthermore, if he's the king of kings, he's got to gather those kings and talk to them. To do that means he's not sitting on the throne at that moment in full-on worship Jesus mode. He's in a business meeting. And he's talking about running the planet. Similarly, as high priest, there's going to be moments where he's operating in that high priestly role. I just imagine right now in heaven, and I... I can't point to a specific verse, so, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But I just imagine as high priest, when you look at the earthly uh, high priesthood that was established, again, that's just a shadow. That's just a picture of what God was already thinking of and had in mind upstairs. I'm imagining there are times in the midst of the assembly. There are times in the midst of the four living creatures and the elders and all the angels and doing stuff where Jesus stands up and says, Father, and then does something says something and all the angels go nuts they all go bonkers because they're following the cue of the high priest i'm imagining that there's aspects of that jesus no one is more passionate about worshiping the father than jesus so i guarantee you there's some aspects where where worshiper mode kicks in and where jesus takes the mic so to speak and, and, and leads the show and leads the, the, the songs in heaven and, and all that. So uh, as high priest, you can't be high priest and not do high priest stuff. So yes, but he's also worship, but he's also king, but he's also judge, but he's also kind, but he's also key architect of the millennial temple. And I mean, he, he, dude's got a very sweet resume, okay? And it's, it is stout, and we are grateful to worship him. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.